Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. Welcome to the Vital and Thriving Podcast. Claire, it is an exciting time for us here in the Diocese of California. Gosh, it sure is. Since we last recorded an episode, we have elected a new bishop. And Bishop-elect Austin, we hope you are listening. We are all looking forward to welcoming you to the Bay Area. You know, Claire, I am, I'm learning that, uh, you know, as a relatively new Episcopalian, that uh, this whole bishop thing's kind of a big deal. Such a big deal, <laughs> yes. There's a lot of expectation in the air. We believe the Holy Spirit has guided us, so we're hoping for deep listening, fresh insight, and renewed vision together with our next faithful spiritual leader. Right. Beautifully said. Well, I, I sense the expectation, um, and I think there's just also expectation uh, for the new year and vital and thriving, especially for the congregations in the pilot cohort. Uh, because they are stepping out with this new spiritual practice dwelling in the world. So I'll just say that as a priest in a congregation in the pilot cohort in Christ Church Los Altos. In the heart of Silicon Valley. Right. Yes. The heart yes. of Silicon Valley. Yes. Uh, this is the spiritual practice I am most excited about. We began with dwelling in the word, listening to God and scripture, and listening one another into free speech to hear God more clearly. But now we're beginning to really notice and attend to the ways in which God is at work outside of our church walls in our wider community. Well, that's right, uh, which is what we've been reflecting on in Dwelling in the Word in Luke 10. We've all become very familiar with Luke 10, yes. Oh, but, well, because it never gets old. Just just, just ask anybody. It never gets old <laughs> that whole first year. Well, Dwelling in the World, ask a simple question. Where have you encountered a person of peace? Yes, we're beginning to pay attention to their hospitality of us and not the other way around. Who has welcomed us and how can we go back to them? Because these are our future partners. That's right. But I'm finding that this is just, it's counterintuitive. Uh, lots of conversations where we just think of mission as our inviting into us. Uh, despite what we've been reading in Luke 10 mm -hmm. uh, for the past year or more, which brings us to our guest today, someone who can, I think, really help us. It's Dr. Scott Hagley. He's an associate professor of world evangelism and missiology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. That's the Presbyterians. <laughs> and author of the book, Eat What is Set Before You, A Missiology of the Congregation in Context. It is really a beautifully written invitation to congregations to 
take seriously what it means to participate in God's mission in a, in a unique and particular, well, context. <laughs> uh, I have known Scott now for, for many years. We participate in a, a colloquium of folks who study congregations, uh, actually folks from all over the world, and we meet all over the world. So Scott and I have been able to have uh, fun together in several continents with more to go. So Scott, thank you for doing this. Welcome to our Vital and Thriving podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks, Claire, too, for the invitation. Yeah. You know, we both love reading this book, uh, Eat What Is Set Before You. And I noticed that uh, you get a ringing endorsement from our uh, someone a lot of our listeners know, Dr. Pat Kiefert, who is the Director of Research for the Center of Church Innovation. Tell us about your connection to Pat and also just kind of what led you to write the book. Sure. So my connection to Pat goes back to uh, the days I was working on my PhD at Luther Seminary. And, you know, the first time I met Pat, I was looking at different graduate programs. I'd known Alan Roxborough at the time and was asking Alan if I'm interested in the kinds of things you're writing about and thinking about, you know, where should I go? And he told me I needed to meet Pat. And uh, I flew all night. It was a, a, a red-eye flight from Vancouver where I was living at the time to St. Paul. I had breakfast with Pat, and the whole time he was talking, I had no idea what he was talking about, <laughs> but it sounded like it was something I needed to figure out. And uh, I kind of made my decision to go to Luther because I, uh, I felt like he was working at a bunch of the intersection of a bunch of conversations. I wasn't even sure how they all matched up, but it seemed vitally important for the church. And so that, that's what, what brought me to, um, to, to Luther and to studying with Pat. What led me to write the book was it, it was really a, an extension of the research I did for my, my thesis, my dissertation. I did a, a year-long study, ethnographic study of a congregation. I was interested in the ways and, the and congregation... Could, would you mind, I'm just, can you just say a word about when you say ethnographic? What that means? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so ethnography comes from uh, from the social sciences, uh, particularly anthropology. It's a way of studying culture. So paying attention to um, the things people do together, and um, rather than um, think about you know our social practices as sort of instrumental towards some other end, like oh you know people shake hands for this reason or that reason really doing a kind of thick description of what's actually happening, how people are um, moving together, what people's bodies are doing, the language that they're using. And this idea that uh, culture, um, to understand culture, we need to thickly describe sort of what people are doing and how they're making sense of what they're doing. And so it's a, it's a, an approach to understanding human behavior and human communities that has a lot of Lately, it's had a, a lot of connections with, with theology because religious communities do a lot of strange things together. And we've often separated the body from the mind, especially in the West. And so ethnography is a way for pay, to help us pay attention to what congregations do together, how they make meaning together, how they shape their life together, and how that might reflect something of who God is and what God is up to. So I, I borrowed from that methodology to pay attention to a congregation, particularly how it was connecting and interfacing with its neighborhood, trying to 
write a kind of theology of neighbor, theology of connection to neighborhood. And so that was my dissertation project, was, which was really focused on a methodology. And then the book became so like the so what that came after. So Awesome. So you start the book reflecting on the phrase that is in the title, eat what is set before you. Words which many of us have been chewing on, forgive the pun, as part of dwelling in the world. You say that Jesus thrusts us right into the middle of all that is confounding, difficult, and ambiguous about faithful witness to the gospel. It's almost like we've forgotten the table manners. We need to be a part of God's mission. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I love the, the I love the Luke 10 text. I was uh, formed in relationship to this text in the way that I'm sure your congregations are uh, as well right now. And, you know, this notion that Jesus sends the disciples out two by two in, in a posture of vulnerability to um, so that they might share the, in their vulnerability, share in the hospitality of those to whom Jesus is sending them. And, you know, we all know that when we are guests somewhere, there's uh, good and bad ways to be a guest. There's ways that you will receive the gifts that are given and um, receive them in gratitude, particularly if you're a guest that's in a place of vulnerability. And um, it's striking to me that this is um, sort of the preconditions for the announcing of the kingdom of God that comes later in that text. And, you know, congregations do lots of wonderful things in neighborhoods have, you know, we have congregations with lots of resources and lots of good people and lots of gifts. But sometimes that can mask for us this, this need that we have to be connected in a deeper way and in a way of our, in our shared humanity, our shared vulnerability with our neighbors that, you know, we forget that we are also guests of the neighborhood where we are because of sometimes the resources we have or sometimes the theology we're working with. And so, yeah, this image of table manners of being a guest, I think is a, a provocative way to rethink or reimagine how our congregations link up and relate to uh, the places where we're located. Yeah. Scott, you, you talk a lot about uh, crises and problems uh, in your book. And, mm-hmm. and one of the problems you talk about is um, the problem of the missionary hero mentality. That is, you know, the leader who's just going to come, you know, lead us and change the world. I could really easily see us right now in the Diocese of California uh, treating our new bishop, uh, or I, I know of congregations who've just welcomed a new rector, kind of having that mindset that the new leader is just, that is, that's what's going to change everything, our missionary hero. But you write, the one sent by Jesus to heal and proclaim the good news of the reign of God will be able to do so only by being dependent upon the gifts and hospitality of others. Say more about what you mean. Sure. I think the the problem with the missionary hero is at a couple levels. One is in the kind of old missionary paradigm where you have a large group of people pooling their resources to send the one person that is exceptionally gifted on their behalf to go to go enact some outcome that this 
funding group of people have imagined, you know, for them. So the voluntary mission society, you know, model, and, you know, what that model does is it sort of takes the mission of God and then understands it in terms of a division of labor. And it's, it's a, it's a structure set up where all the arrows are moving in one direction from the group that gathers to make a decision about what needs to happen in the world to the person that's the hero that's sent on their behalf. And then the other problem with it is, is the, the, the pressure we sort of put on the hero, you know, usually himself to go change the world, you know, to, to be effective in a particular kind of way. And, and again, it's an imagination that envisions uh, a kind of a telos to, telos to mission, right? That, that we can decide things. We have the resources, we have the gifts, we have the message. And now the world is sort of a target or an audience, you know, and, and so it, it, it impacts both the hero it impacts the hero, it impacts the group that's sending the hero, and it impacts the neighborhood or the people to whom the hero is sent. And, you know, what's interesting is, is when you look at, you know, sort of post-colonial approaches to mission that are sort of reassessing the, the kind of modern missionary movement, there's a lot of work that shows that when even against the intentions of the of the sending one, uh, <laughs> there there is there is transformation that happens on on both sides. So a very famous text by Laman Sane, uh, translating the message, talks yeah, about yeah. you know the experience of West African communities that received missionaries who translated texts into the local vernacular. And when a text is translated into the local vernacular and they choose a local name for God, and as the African theologian Kwame Bediako says, is when the local name for God was chosen, what the missionaries were unintentionally doing was was naming the history of the God of Jesus Christ in that place and tying that community into this larger movement. And so what happened in those communities is even if missionaries were very conservative, even if they were very clear on trying to kind of reinforce Western notions of the Christian community or Christian practice, there was a, there was a, a kind of cultural vernacular that took hold and in, uh, in those communities, and, and they were resistant in some ways. Their, their, their local culture in the language of Lama and Sane was um, destigmatized, and the mm. sending culture of the missionary was relativized. And so there's all these stories of missionaries, these these missionary heroes on the mission field who themselves have crises of faith because of this kind of cross-cultural, kind of intercultural interaction. And so I think there's something, you know, not that, not that the colonial mission project is our model, but even when that was attempted, it wasn't true to sort of the, the kinds of dynamics that happen when there's legitimate attempts to do intercultural, contextual you know, kinds of listening and attentiveness that in even in this act of translation, there's something that happens. And, and so, you know, when it comes, when we think about congregations and their relationship to uh, their neighborhoods, you know, I think, I think that there's a tendency for us to think of the, the raising of money of our congregations, the creation of programs, and then the hiring of, of staff or whatever, to be about enacting a vision that the congregation has for the surrounding neighborhood. There's poverty, we're going to address it. There's people that, you know, need to come to church and, and come to know the God that we know, we're going to do evangelism. There's, you know, a housing issue, we're going to address it. And so we borrow from this kind of missionary mentality, even in communities that might be fairly critical of the missionary enterprise, 
Um, we well, still borrow like the technology. Sounds like you've met an Episcopalian or two. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, this is not Episcopal, the Episcopal Church. I mean, this is this is a really widespread, right? In, sure. in the model that we have, because our congregations are modeled after voluntary associations, even if mm-hmm. our ecclesiology says something different. And so it's, it puts the missionary hero in a place that a lot is dependent upon them and the ministry sort of revolves around them. And it basically divides the labor of mission in such a way that our communities are not necessarily involved in this participatory kind of relationship either. And so this is where you get burnout with pastors. This is where you get communities that their only connection to the neighborhood is through a a particularly exemplary leader who, when they leave or they retire or they you know, or something else happens that the community loses its connection. I mean, these are the kinds of problems that come with this heroic missionary narrative, besides the fact that I think it's theologically problematic. Wow, I really appreciated that response. I think a lot of our listeners will too. So you write that hospitality provides an image of the gospel. We are simultaneously guest and the host of the triune God, So also we relate to one another in a fluid interchange between guest and host. I know in my congregation, we've had lots of really deep and sometimes humbling and sometimes hilarious conversations about what it means to be a guest or a host and what that feels like. Um, Can you unpack what you mean by hospitality and why is it so hard for many of us to be hosted? How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a big question. (laughs) I mean, this is is really, I mean, I think particularly for white mainline congregations, this is one of the biggest spaces of learning and repentance and kind of Mm. reformation that is required. Because I do think whiteness is, uh, as, as an ideology or as an embodied way of sort of being in the world, is resistant to and undermining of, of a Christian understanding of hospitality, right? Mm. So, in, in the framework that, we've inher- that many of our churches have inherited, hospitality is still a kind of expression of power and creating sort of one-way traffic, if I can say it in that mm. way where we want to entertain people, we want to make room so people join us and assimilate to us on our terms. So we have hospitality committees that, you know, are really about making sure when people show up on a Sunday, they show up to our event, that they feel welcome, and that they understand the terms of joining our community. And that's not really the way, um, you know, when hospitality is evoked as a metaphor for how God relates to us and how we relate to God and the Bible, it's a, it's a very different way in which it's used. And, and really, the Christian tradition of hospitality is, is much closer to something like what we see in Luke 10, where guest, the, the, the roles of guest and host are, are fluid. So, so mm-hmm. in the same way that the, that the stranger opens, the person of peace and the stranger opens the door to the disciple and is the, the host, uh, the disciple announces the reign of God and heals the sick and then becomes in some way the host, right? And there's this kind of this sharing of gifts that happens through uh, mutual vulnerability, mutual openness, creating space for the other. Christine Pohl uh, wrote a book years back, Making Room, where she Mm. uses making room as the metaphor. And she says, hospitality is, I'm going to get the language wrong here, but in essence, hospitality is the essence of the gospel, you know, Mm -hmm. that in Christ, God welcomes us. 
but we respond in faith by welcoming God or by opening our lives up um, to God. And so like as Paul says in, I think it's Romans 15, you know, welcome one another just as God in Christ has welcomed you. And I think that that kind of play of, of host and hosted that reinforces our basic creatureliness, our dependence mm-hmm. upon God, our interdependence with one another, that, that there is no kind of tr- true human life apart from mutuality and shared vulnerability and shared life, that, you know, this is, this is part of what hospitality uh, witnesses to. And I think the, the last thing about hospitality, and this is something I would have learned from Pat um, in his book, Welcoming the Stranger, is that hospitality also gives us a way in, to, in the church to think about and to talk about how making room for strangers and honoring them as stranger or honoring them as other can be an act of faith and, and an act of um, witness to the gospel, even if they never become friends, right? That um, even if we never, we, we think of intimacy as the only sort of valued relationship, but hospitality is a practice of making room for others as other on their own terms and not making them join us or become like us to be, uh, you know, to, to be included. And, and so I, th- I, think, I think there's, you know, those sort of two levels, reinforcing our mutuality and the way we participate in life with one another and how this is an expression of the gospel. And also that we can dwell, we, we don't need to have uh, close relationships or relationships that assimilate onto our terms to, ha- to still have them be relationships that are uh, witnessing to something of who God is and faithful to our Christian identity in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our congregations, though, are really articulating uh, what I would call crisis when they when they discovered the limitations they have moving forward to kind of uh, discover the neighbor to kind of move, to to move into that mutuality uh, and you write about that uh, you said use the language of crisis you say mission evokes crisis for our faith so you write, and I'll, I'll keep reading what you wrote it's a crisis forcing us to rethink and reimagine our life together learning to be a guest in the neighborhood. Scott, why why is it so freaking hard for mainline congregations to find their place at the table, as you say, God has set in the neighborhood? I mean, that's the million-dollar question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I do think it's hard, and I don't think it's just mainline congregations. I think it's, I think it's any of our congregations that have – deep roots in European Christendom. Yeah. You know, and I think there's probably, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. One of the reasons for it, I think, has to do with the ways mission has been imagined in the Christendom mindset. So uh, a scholar, uh, Jehu Hensels, wrote a book, Beyond Christendom, where he talks about the, the kind of European Christendom imagination as essentially a, a sort of European kind of tribal religion in the sense that to be Christian was to be European, to be European was to be Christian. And there was a clean boundary between geography, culture, and religion that made it so when there was an encounter with difference, when there was an encounter with otherness, an encounter with other religious deities or whatever, that it was seen as a sort of competitive moment. And so mission emerges as this attempt to expand the boundaries of 
of the European kind of Christendom uh, arrangement. And so again, the arrows, you know, arrows heading in one direction and the goal of mission being assimilation rather than a kind of pluralist, intercultural, multicultural kind of expression of, of faith. And so I think that that that's still sort of a, a deeply in our bones. And so we we want to impact, you know, our neighbors and our neighborhood. We don't always think about how it might be faithful to the gospel to be impacted by our neighbors and our neighborhood. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I love your language of faithful presence and how you point out that we're not primarily called and maybe not even called at all to change the world, but to dwell faithfully within it. What does your research teach you about faithful presence? You know, the language of faithful presence comes from, it, it came from me, the, probably the first time I came across this came from um, James Davison Hunter's book. To, to uh, is that the oh, one I'm, to change the world? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I needed, uh, I, I, let me back up because I couldn't, I just blanked on what the book I, was called. And I, I, and I just yeah. want to ask, because uh, we didn't talk about this before, but Miroslav Volf also has an, an essays on First Peter uh-huh. That's the yeah. first time I came across the term faithful presence. And I yeah. think that may be where Hunter gets it from, but I'm not I'm not sure. But for those of you who Google, I will just say there's James Davison Hunter's book, but also uh Wolf's Wolf's uh faithful presence uh there's essays out there somewhere on the blogosphere well, in the yeah, in well, Google. Wolf, You'll Wolf find has. it. Yeah, and Wolf has that book, um, A Public Faith, where I think he talks mm-hmm. about this as well. Yeah. I mean, so this is this is a yeah. part of this is a part of the conversation. What I really liked about James Davison Hunter's approach is he sort of starts out saying, for all of the attempts of Christians in America to sort of change their world, why have they been so bad at it? Um, mm. and it moves into this this kind of deep analysis of of how culture is formed, how cultures change. And what he, what he comes back to is the power of the gospel is less a, a power that operates sort of from the top down and more a power that operates from the bottom up. And so the call for Christians is not necessarily to get Christians in places of power to, or to play power politics. And this is written way before the kind of recent rise of Christian nationalism, but it looks wiser probably now. But rather, it, the call of Christians is to, is to express in their life together a, a way of life that looks like the good news, that's attentive to time and to place. And so there's this idea of faithful presence within, that our, our public lives, our political lives, our everyday lives can witness to the good news in the same way that our, collect, our gathered life as a congregation. And so, you know, it's in these, it's in building deeper connections with others for the sake of the common good. It's in learning how to be good neighbors. It's in learning how to live perhaps more uh, locally and, econ- and environmentally sustainably. And also in learning to be a people that gather and care for one another and care for our neighbors in our neighborhood, that these are ways of being faithfully present to the gospel within the culture uh, where we're located. And I think that that offers a pathway towards thinking about churches and in um, multicultural, multi-religious contexts, it 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 helps us rethink and redraw some of the lines of how we've, you know, either walled off Christian communities or or undermined even our own sense of Christian identity in the sake of multiculturalism because we're just not sure how to be Christian in a 
pluralist space. I think this idea of trying to be faithfully present within gives us another way to imagine how these relationships might be honoring to God and be part of our formation as Christians without feeling the need to lecture, to domineer, to to assimilate, and things like that. You know, I... um you're trained in the uh, as a consultant uh, in the process that that uh, that we use in in vital and thriving. And I'm wondering, as we kind of come to the end of this uh, interview, um, is there any advice that you have? Just kind of considering the whole of the journey, because we have people who are listening who maybe they're just going to get started next year. Uh, we have people who are, you know, pilot group that are well into their experiment phase others who are about to begin the, the, the process of discovery. Any advice uh, you have to share? Oh, boy. I mean, my, my advice would be to um, stick with the process. And by the process, I mean particularly the spiritual disciplines that are a part of, of the vital and thriving congregations the dwelling in the word, the dwelling in the world, the learning to practice discernment together, because these are things, even if some of the programmatic stuff spectacularly fails, these, these are things that are forming in the community an ability to pay attention to one another and to God and to trust that in our conversations with one another, we might discern or discover something new about who we are and who God is calling us to be and what God is up to uh, in our neighborhood. And, you know, so many of our churches are, are so good at doing church, like running the committees, running the programs, kind of doing the business of church that we have not, we've lost comfort with the language of our faith and the practices of our faith that God might actually want to say something to us. And if we can stop and listen, we might be able to hear it. And that God might be saying something to us in, you know, through the voice of our neighbor or the stranger that shows up uh, you know, at our church some Sunday morning, and that these are, uh, you know, but we're going to miss it if we're not paying attention. So I think those those practices are so formational, and they are gifts that will keep on giving. They're both powerful and they're portable. You can put them in lots of different settings in a church, and they they have they have a kind of power. And I I think the the and I think the second um, big thing is to just realize that success in relationship to this process can look a lot of different ways. And so, you know, vita- uh, congregational vitality and faithfulness to congregational mission in this time of massive cultural and social changes and massive changes in how people participate in voluntary associations and relate to their faith or, or any faith at all in the political environment that we're in. What faithfulness will look like, I think is, I don't even know if we really know what that means anymore. I don't know if we really even know what a, you know, what the shape of a vital and vitalizing congregation might be. And so, you know, I've worked with congregations where there's 12 active members who have opened up their community to monthly community meetings, and there's beautiful things happening in their neighborhood, and the congregation is helping create the room for that but there's still 12 active members, right? And I would think in a lot of ways, this is a gift and a success and God is up to something, but their anxiety lower down on the scale that, um, you know, if we don't start growing, I don't know how we're going to survive much longer. That, that anxiety is still there, right? And 
but this, this, that's what this time of transition and uncertainty means for us and for our congregations. And so trust the process and just be open to all the, the different kinds of gifts that might come along the way that, that success and vitality um, might look different than what you imagine it being when you start. That is so helpful. So Scott, we have now come to the lightning round, a much beloved tradition here on the Vital and Thriving Podcast. Claire? <laughs> so you'll have 20 seconds or less to answer each of the following three questions. Are you ready? Um, okay. I guess I don't have a choice, do I? <laughs> That's right. No, you do not. <laughs> okay. First, what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Go. Uh, probably kimchi. Ooh, yum. Uh, home, homemade. You know, I've only, only had it in a restaurant before. It was great. Amazing. Yeah. What is Do you your... like it really hot? You, oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, go for do it. Do you like it really hot? Do you like it really hot and spicy or? I, I, I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love, I love Korean food generally and, um, you know, but don't get an opportunity to eat like homemade Korean food very often. So it, it was actually really good. Yum. What is your very first memory of a worship service? Go. Boy, um, I grew up Catholic, so it would have been uh, the one I they came to mind was my first communion mass. But I'm sure I remember ones before that. But that would have been like first or second grade. And I just remember being really nervous and being disappointed mm -hmm. that the wafer just tasted like a wafer. So. Mm. And um, tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should know more about. Go. Hmm. So, uh, who who I use a lot in my teaching, but this isn't going to be a big um, out of the ordinary. Um, would be would be Willie Jennings, particularly yeah. the way he frames re kind of tries to reframe the modern missionary movement, connecting that to, um, you know, the, the functioning of, of whiteness in our culture and, and the ways it disconnects us. And I think his, his acts commentary in particular is, is really, really excellent. And that, uh, it's in that belief series, I think, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. That is fantastic. And can I just say, Scott, you, you got, you triggered my synapses of memory to the first time I had kimchi, uh, which was at Princeton Seminary uh, as a seminary student. And it was a friend who lived, I lived in the Erdman dorm. And uh, there was a friend who buried the kimchi in the backyard of, of Erdman dorm. Because wow. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, he was making it. And uh, yeah, it made an impression. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for doing this, my friend. Just great to have you today. So good. Thank yeah, you, Scott. Great to be with you. Yeah, mm -hmm. thanks for the invite. Great to be with you. So, Scott, what did you learn from Professor Hagley today? Well, I mean, I just um I I needed some of these uh, reminders. And the things that that came alive to me again were just that deep, the deep, it's why we start with dwelling in the word, right? Which is mm -hmm. reconnecting to the idea that, that God is in the neighborhood, that mm -hmm. God is at work in this place. God is at work in people of peace. 
Uh, so I think that sense of reminder and also just that, that freedom that comes, I think when you kind of trust that and you let go and you just, you know, there's just an openness to discover the who and to like, just give that time, give the spirit time to work and to, and to see what, you know, to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, those are the stories that inspire me. Um, I'm looking for I, the thing. Also, I was, you know, I sometimes daydream. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I know, surprising, right? But the other thing was, I just, I found my daydreams kind of going to, gosh, I just can't wait to hear the stories that are going to come out of this in our mm. diocese. Like I, I know there are going to be really wonderful stories. New neighbors, new friends, new connections that are, are going to just be really, you know, it's going to be just joyful to hear. Yeah. How, how about you? So I'll start by acknowledging as an undergrad, I was a cultural anthropology major. So I love the ethnographic framework and the way in which he structured his research and just took us into this context and this community that was very familiar and compelling for me. I think the parts that were so relevant and helpful were around that idea of faithful presence and letting go of our notions of what success might mean or look like. Like as as an example, one thing we've been discovering in my community lately is that we have these um, Wednesday evening dinners that we've been offering for a while. And they are not you know, worshipful or churchy or even Christian in any explicit sense, other than that we eat together and we enjoy community. And we have 60 some people coming, 30 of whom are kids. It's mostly young families. We do an art activity together. We eat together. We're living into some kind of structure around it. And we're kind of beginning to look at each other like, this is a vibrant way in which we are in relationship with people in our community who mostly are not coming to church and many of whom are not Christian. And yet they come to these things and they are talking openly and with vulnerability about their challenges and their lives and they're building friendships with one another. And even just looking at things that we've been doing and are already doing and seeing like maybe God is at work at this, even if none of these people ever come to church on Sunday morning. And maybe these are all people of peace and we're already in relationship with them and we didn't even realize it. So I I find these conversations with the people we're interviewing so helpful for giving us language. You know, Claire, this is um, reminding me of that beautiful conversation we had with Debbie Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, such a wonderful writer. So good. Who's local here in the Diocese of California uh, and uh, is uh, a writer for the Christian Century. But we, we talked about evangelism at a certain point in that conversation, which can mm-hmm. be such a awkward, <laughs> such an awkward word uh, because we associate it with manipulation or kind of an agenda for people. And I think when we when we set it in this kind of context, it actually just becomes about uh, being faithful and authentic, right? Just being mm-hmm. who we are, telling our stories, and trusting, you know, God to be at work in the in the sharing of life together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. 
Well, thank you. And thank you all listeners for joining us today. Uh, We wish you, whenever you're listening to this, we wish you a, a blessed Advent or a Merry Christmas or a Happy New Year or a Happy Easter if you just are finally getting around to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. We look forward to another episode soon. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between the Center for Church Innovation and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. For more information, visit churchinnovation.org.